0: What is this? Well, you're kind of cheating, but what is it? Okay, we'll go with the book. I think you guys, let's stop while we're ahead. So is it possible that this book may have something valuable in it that would help you? Is it possible? Now, what would you need to do to find out if that's the case? You'd have to open it and read it. So you're going to help me today. Those of you in the front. Actually, I'm going to do this. Can anybody read this? Okay, those of you in the back, sorry, you're not going to get to participate in this. That's what you get for sitting in the back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, could be Hebrew. Could be Yiddish. Could be Aramaic. Can Can anybody read this? No? No takers? So we have a book that may have something valuable for us in it, but we can't read it. And we know that there are probably thousands and millions of these books that we would need help reading in order to see if there's something in there that can help us. That reminds me of a story. In 1941, Argentinian author Jorge Luis Borges wrote a short story, and he called it the Library of Babel. Now, the Library of Babel, the story is the discovery of this library, it's a vast, unending building that contains all the books that have ever been written and all the books that could be written in every language. Now, each book looks exactly like the other, having exactly 410 pages. I don't know where he got that number. But each book has 410 pages. The cover of each book has a title, but the title has nothing to do with the contents of the book. This library contains all the histories, all the commentaries on the histories, all the true histories, and all the false histories. The problem with this library is that you can walk the corridors forever and never distinguish what is true from what is false. Now, Borges writes, at first, when the library was discovered, there was great optimism and celebration. The people of the library figured out, well, the truth has got to be out there, and all they had to do was find it. Men set out in search of what they called their vindications. Those were books that tell the stories of their own lives and even tell their futures. However, they failed to find these vindications, and these men ended up killing each other off or going insane. Others hoped to find a book that would explain the origin of the library and of the human race, and they established an official group of people, they called them inquisitors, to do that job. After several centuries of fruitless searching, though, no one expects to find anything anymore. The period of optimism was followed by one of despair of ever finding anything meaningful in the library. Now, some people suggested they'd have better luck rolling dice and making their own books. Others thought that the best course of action would be to destroy all the meaningless books in the hopes of finding the good ones. But because the library is so vast, they were unable to make a serious dent in the number of books. Now, interestingly, the narrator talks of one lingering suspicion from that early period that somewhere there existed this godlike figure known as the bookman. The idea was that somewhere in the library there was one book that could explain all the other books. They called it the total book. And that some librarian must have read it. That was the bookman. This bookman, in Borges' words, would then acquire the powers of a God. The narrator is sure that the total book must exist, and he hopes that some man has had the chance to read it. Now, I think it's safe to say that when this story was written in 1941, from then till now, we can see an almost prophetic description of where we're at today with information. Can we all admit we're in the library of Babel with information? And I love these quotes, these stats. Just to illustrate, now this is kind of mind-blowing. Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, says that every 48 hours we create more information than was created from the birth of the world through the year 2003. And he has a number on it, 5 billion gigabytes. To some of you, that means something. To me, it just means big. Serenity mentioned anxiety that we feel over the sheer volume the fear that we can't know enough, and the fear that we won't be able to find exactly what we need or we want. Science writer James Glick, who I actually met at JFK about 11 years ago, subtitled his latest work, The Information, A History, A Theory, A Flood. The feeling of drowning in an endless rush of data is common. And of course, this accelerates to the accelerated pace of life that we feel buried under. Now, what's the promise behind the information? Ed talked last week about behind advertisements, commercials. There's a promise. There are promises there. And he gave the example of the the really beautiful woman with the beer. And the implication is somehow, even though it's not spelled out, you get the beer, you get the lady. What's the promise behind the information? Isn't it that more information we have, the better our lives will be? Isn't that the promise? The more data, the more channels, the faster downloads, we'll be happier. The promise is that the more we accumulate in information, the better off we'll be. So we look to this flood of information to change us, but isn't it the case we find ourselves the same in many cases? Information is deceptive. Because when we have a lot of it, especially in a certain subject, we can also think ourselves masters. Information is kind of like money in this way. We have a lot of it, we think a lot of ourselves. Instead, what do we realize we wind up to be? Our learned ignoramuses. So we find ourselves wandering in the library of Babel looking for the total book and hoping to find the bookman to explain it all. So what if I told you today, we Christians believe that we have as close to the total book as we can find. And it's the Bible. And what would you say if I told you today that we also believe that we've found the bookman? Or rather, the bookman has found us. We call him Jesus. So we're going to open up that total book today And we're going to try to answer some questions. What is the bookman like? What does he think of us? What does he have to say to us? What's his purpose? How do we respond to him? What does he think of the very worst of us? So let's pray before we go on. Lord, I'm more than aware of well, just how far short I fall with this message. And I pray that you would forgive my sins. You'd make this real, God. This is so important. And we're we're buried. We're drowning. We're frantic. And we need you. So come and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do something that I like to call countercultural, and I know that brings images of the 1960s and tie-dye and everything else, but we're not going to go in that direction. What we're going to do is we're going to take a slow cook. In a small piece of scripture, we're going to go into the, the total book, and we're going to go into one of the biographies of the bookman. We're going to go into Dr. Luke's biography. Dr. Luke was a physician that wrote in the first century, and his book was included, his biography of Jesus included in really what's a library, known as the Bible, in Luke chapter 19. And I just want to set this up. Jesus is going towards the end of his ministry. He's walking to Jerusalem. That's how they got around in those days. No public transportation. And Luke is going to tell us what happens when he enters a city known as Jericho. So why don't we all stand up? We're going to go old school, as Ed likes to say. And this is on the screen. I'm going to read. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You may be seated. So Jesus passes through the town of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. It's about a day's walk. And crowds are lined up along the main street, and there's a buzz in the air. The famous rabbi is in town. Jesus at this point has quite a following. He is really the rock star of first century Palestine. So he walks the street with people pushing into him, trying to touch him. The paparazzi are there. And his disciples are probably yelling, make way, Jesus is coming. And they're probably a little puffed up with some importance. And somewhere in the crowd, there's a little man named Zacchaeus. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus, whose name means, ironically, pure or innocent, is a tax collector. Tax collectors had a dubious responsibility. What they would do is they would steal from the poor and give to the rich. In the eyes of their fellow Israelites, they were usually placed in the same social category as prostitutes. Now, Rome had been in the empire building business for a few centuries, so they were good at this. What they would do is they'd occupy a country, and so they didn't have to tie up their own personnel to collect taxes. They would farm it out to the locals. They would franchise it out. And these people, the tax collectors, would collect the tax, more like tolls. They were almost like customs officers. And the locals got to keep a percentage of what they collected. Now, picture the IRS, which is very appropriate. We're coming up to that time, right? Right? April 15th. Okay, sorry to depress you all. Picture the IRS, except instead of your tax money going to your own government, it goes to a foreign power. And picture that the IRS official works on commission. That's Zacchaeus. So in taking people's money and giving it to the occupying power of Rome, tax collectors were considered traitors to the nation, parasites on their own people. And we read that not only is he a tax collector, he is a chief. So he's really good at this. He is really good at chiseling his own people. So Zacchaeus is in his office, and he's weighing out some poor tradesmen's pennies on a scale in front of him. And he hears the commotion outside. And he finds out it's Jesus. And he wants to see him. Now, why do you think? Maybe to get a glimpse At a celebrity? Maybe because everyone else was going? Well, Luke tells us simply that Zacchaeus wanted to see who he was. So there's something that's drawing our chief tax collector. But there's a problem now because the crowd has lined the streets and Zacchaeus can't get through. Zacchaeus was what we would call today vertically challenged. Okay, and he had a little problem with that. Now, it's funny how a lot of the the commentators on this also call him fat. And the Bible doesn't say that, but considering that he was rich, that's a possibility. My grandfather grew up in the 1920s in the farm country of Pennsylvania and Ohio and then to Brooklyn, a weird kind of route. But he said that when he met a fat person, sorry, a, a horizontally challenged person, what he would say to himself is this person must be rich. Because they were able to afford a lot of food. So maybe that's a good surmise. I'm not sure. But in any case, we have the vertically challenged Zacchaeus trying to see through the crowd to see who Jesus is. So picture this. He's doing this and he's trying to see who is coming. He wants to see Jesus. He knows he's coming. He wants to see him. But he can't get through the crowd. You have to understand that this guy was not well liked by his fellow citizens in Jericho. And I imagine that as he tried to worm his way through the crowd, people looked to the left and saw him coming through. I'm sure they had no trouble standing in front of him, probably saying something like dirtbag, and making sure that he couldn't get through. So that's his status with his fellow people. But you know what? He's a chief, right? Chief tax collector. And he's compelled. He's a resourceful guy. You don't get to be the chief of anything unless you have a little moxie. So Luke tells us he looks ahead of Jesus and he sees a sycamore tree. And he makes a run for it to climb the tree. You know, there's very little running in the Bible. I'm serious. You can go you know, go to your BibleGateway.com and do a word search. Go old school, actually open up a concordance and look for run, running, ran in the Bible. There's very little of it. And there's a reason for it. One is, probably the main reason is in the Near East, grown-ups didn't run. Grown-up males did not run because... That was a betrayal of their dignity. Grown-up rich men did not run. Zacchaeus, being a rich grown-up male, had a certain gravitas about him. You can only say that with a British accent, by the way. He had a certain gravity about him. He didn't run. But in this case, he did. He ran. He was willing to surrender his aura of dignity to see Jesus. So he makes it to the tree. He finds some branches that will hold his weight, and he scrambles up, and he's in for the shock of his life. Because Luke tells us, when he came to the place, Jesus looked up and called him by name and invited himself over for dinner. What Luke actually wrote is, it is necessary, Jesus says, it is necessary for me to stay at your house today. How could Zacchaeus, how could he have reacted to this? I want to go into some possibilities. He could have said no. He could have said, my house, well, you know, it's a mess. I didn't even get a chance to shop. There's like one matzah in the whole house. Okay, I, this, it's not a good time. He could have said that. He could have said, Jesus, Rabbi, I just wanted to get a look. But to have you stay in my house? Mm, That's a little bit too close for me. You see, I do better with people when they're at a distance. Or he could have said, I'm very comfortable with where I'm at now. Never mind, I'm sitting in a tree. I've got a comfortable life. I don't really want any problems. Or he could have said, Jesus, you've got the wrong guy. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? You don't want to come to my house. So how does he respond to what sounds like a command, right? Jesus is inviting himself over, but this command turns out to be the greatest invitation he's ever heard. So Zacchaeus shimmies down the trunk and he lands in a heap at the foot of the tree and he looks up at Jesus. And Luke says that he came down quickly and welcomed him joyfully. Now the crowd does not react so joyfully to this. They have a different perspective. They say, he's gone to a sinner's house. I imagine the conversations, as they see this taking place, they're probably saying to each other, why is Jesus even talking to this guy? I thought the rabbi knew everything. Doesn't he know this guy is he's dirt? Doesn't he know that? And wait, wait, he's gonna go in this guy's house and eat his food? and sleep in his guest bed? Oh, doesn't he know he's going to be unclean by doing that? Out of all these people, out of all of us, he picks this guy? And I have to say this about the crowd. I think that's a good question. Why did Jesus go to Zacchaeus? Out of all the hundreds of people in that crowd, why him? I don't think it's an accident that he picked the very worst person in that town. See, Jesus was able to discern an openness in Zacchaeus. He was able to discern the Father's will in this moment because he was in tune with the Father's heart. The crowd sees only a sinner. Jesus sees an opportunity. Jesus is usually out of sync with the crowd. What if we use that as a criterion for our spiritual growth? (laughs) If we're really out of sync with the crowd, we know we're going places. Now that would be different. How out of sync are you with the crowd? And if Jesus would have followed the crowd, he would have missed what happens next. There is a change in Zacchaeus. Listen to what he says. Look, I'm giving away half of what I have right now to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I'm paying them back four times what I owe them. Now that's a significant amount. Leviticus, in the law that the Israelites follow, Leviticus chapter 6, requires that anyone who cheats his neighbor and confesses it is required to return what he stole plus 20%. Exodus 22 says a thief that gets caught has to pay the victim double what he stole. But Exodus 22 verse 1 says, the fourfold restitution is for one situation. That is for the man caught stealing something essential without pity. That's for the person that steals the only lamb of his neighbor, and then slaughters it. So what Zacchaeus is saying, in effect, is, that's me. That's what I am. That's the category that I realize I am in. That's me. And Jesus responds. He says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. What does it mean to be lost? What does it mean? I'm not talking about the show. Zacchaeus understood in some sense he was lost. Well, what does it mean? Some common synonyms? Off course, off track, having lost one's bearings, going around in circles, adrift, or astray. I think it's safe to say that Zacchaeus did not lack information. He lacked orientation. He was unconnected to God. How did he get there? How do any of us get lost? I mean, really, how do any of us get lost? Isn't it safe to say we just find ourselves lost? Nobody, well, let me say this. Zacchaeus, I'm sure, in his high school yearbook there at Jericho High, did not have under his picture a future chief tax collector future parasite of his people. I'm sure he didn't have that. I remember years ago talking to somebody I worked with who had just gone through a divorce, and he said, you know, nobody intends to get divorced. He said, nobody intends to do that. But for some people it happens. There's no child when you ask him, what do you want to be when he grows up? There's no child in the world that says, I want to be an alcoholic or an adulterer. We'll just stay in the A's. So how does that happen? We just do. We may not intend to get lost, but through a thousand bad choices, we wind up one day looking up saying, how did I get here? So the key question for us, because I think we all find ourselves to some degree in that situation, is how do we get unlost? The key thing in this story for me is Jesus is the agent of change. Jesus is the agent of Can you all repeat that for me? I'm sorry. Can you repeat it? Jesus is the agent of change. Not information and not Zacchaeus himself. Jesus is the agent of change. It starts with Jesus. He is the agent of change. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. It starts with Jesus. I know this sounds incredibly unfair to certain people, that Jesus is the agent of change. Here's what I mean. You know, we've seen a lot of good people who have devoted their lives to what I call not Jesus. Right? And I'm talking about people, you know, Muslims and Buddhists and even altruistic secularists. uh, I just made up a label. They've devoted their lives to not Jesus. So for me to stand up here and say, Jesus is the agent of change It kind of sounds unfair, doesn't it? Maybe for some of you, uh, or even some listening, it offends your democratic sensibilities. He is the only agent of change. But I look at it this way: I don't know anybody else that came to seek and save me. I don't know anybody else. I know that there have been people. I mean, even in the last century, you have people like Gandhi or or the Dalai Lama. Let's say, and and you know, some of these guys they had wisdom. But people came to them. I don't know anybody else who came to seek and to save. And if you can think of somebody, let's have a conversation. Because I'd like to know. I will give that serious thought. But who else is like this? And who else picks the worst guy in the crowd to seek and to save? Who else has ever... I just don't know. Who else has ever done that? Another thing that Zacchaeus got is... He heard the command for what it really was. It was an invitation. You notice that Jesus invited himself. (laughs) He basically said, get down, I'm coming to your house. That was not a request. I'm coming, he said. You remember the the woman at the well? Ed preached on this last week, John chapter 5. Do you remember how that started, in essence, with a command that Jesus gave the woman? He said, give me a drink. He didn't request it. He said, give me a drink. I don't do well with commands. I don't know about you. I like to think that I make up my own mind on things. I'm sure if you asked my wife, she would probably say differently. But I like to think of myself as an independent thinker. We bristle at commands, don't we? We, we don't like to be told what to do. What if we saw Jesus' commands for what they really are? What if we saw them as invitations? Invitations to a new kind of life. To enter a new kind of life to enter what he called an abundant life. Zacchaeus got this. He got this. And one other thing. Did you realize there's a cost to this? When Jesus comes to stay in your house, there's a cost. There's a cost. And the cost goes both ways. It costs Jesus to stay at Zacchaeus' house. The hostility of the crowd that was meant for Zacchaeus, Jesus took that on himself. He absorbed that hostility. It cost him. And what did it cost Zacchaeus? It cost him change. It cost him change. His response was change. Jesus, when he moves into our house, is going to change how we deal with stuff and how we deal with each other. So I was thinking, what would it look like if as a church we took this seriously That Jesus came to seek and to save that was lost. If we were able to cut through the mounds of information and we were able to grab that and understand this is what the book man is all about. What if we were able to get that? What if that became the foundation of our lives together and our lives in the world? I think that a few things would happen. One is we would be a people that desired to help Others That we would be moved to help others. Now, Jesse Rudy last week talked about International Justice Mission and how he got involved with it and how he was just listening in a seminar and he got moved. And God worked on him to want to rescue the oppressed, the slaves, the victims of human trafficking. If we get a hold of this, that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, we're going to want to do that. Because as he said better than I did, that's the heart of the Father. We're going to look for ways to do that. We're not just going to wait for the ways to come to us. We're going to go and look for the ways. We're going to do that locally and beyond. Also, we will be out of sync with the crowd. We're going to be out of sync. We're going to hear and see things that the crowd will not. We're going to have a focus that those in the library of Babel did not have. We will be a church that learns how to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that what we really want? Isn't that what we want? We want to cut through the noise and follow His prompting. And we're going to be a people that give. And what are we going to give? We're going to start with money. I'm not just saying that because of the building campaign. But we're going to take a different attitude to our stuff. And for some of us, we're going to give what's even harder for us to give, things like our time, our energy. We're going to give. So I just want to take a minute. Where are you at today? It's a short story. Jesus cuts to the chase. Where are you at? Some of you are in the crowd. You don't want to run because there's a certain dignity that you want to preserve. A certain image. And maybe you've got some idea of who Jesus is. After all, you're sitting here in a church, school. But you don't want to get too close. What I would say to you today, those of you in the crowd, is Jesus is scanning the crowd. He is scanning the crowd looking for you. He's looking for you. And maybe you're in the tree. (laughs) And you're hoping that the leaves are going to hide you. And he's looking up at you. And he's inviting himself to your house. What are you going to do? What is your response going to be? Or maybe, maybe you're Zacchaeus. You shimmied down the trunk. And Jesus is, is, he's in your house. You've made that connection. You've welcomed him in. But you are struggling to give things up. You're struggling because you've bought into the promise that more is better. And he is encouraging you, commanding you, inviting you to lighten the load. So wherever you're at today, we're going to take about 30 seconds. Do some work with God. Where are you at in those three places? Where are you at?